there's a huge wake-up call coming. I mean, we're all watching Starbucks unionizing, we're watching Amazon unionizing, Apple starting to unionize. I feel like there's a, a huge wake-up call to sort of the ruling class, the you know oligarchs of America, if you will, um, because workers are uniting and recognizing that, that people have the power. And I, I do think letting go of the power and the hierarchy and the sort of trickle up to the top financial model, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping is going to start to have some challenges over the next few years. The Grow Dialogue podcast is a liberation project that explores equity, inclusion, belonging, conflict resolution, and culture in the workplace and beyond, including in our personal relationships, families, and communities. Each week, my co-host, Mariella Marie, and I will bring you insightful guest interviews and artistic expressions curated to amplify emerging voices who are sharing practices that support society's transition to a more collaborative, just, sustainable, and liberating coexistence. We live during a time when divisiveness and polarization dominate the social, economic, and political discourse. In response to this reality, and empowered with the skills of authentic dialogue and systems thinking, I created an anti-oppression framework for social sustainability called Theory of Indivisibility to help illuminate a different path forward. Our hope is that these conversations and calls to action will ignite tolerance and empathy and provide guidance for our global listeners who want to actively engage in ending all forms of oppression while creating thriving relationships in the workplace and beyond. I'm Dr. Sunjata Sunjata. Let's grow dialogue. Hey, Merce. How you doing? Hey, Sunjata. Good. So good to be with you. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for agreeing to carve out some time to share a little bit about you and your, your journey through corporate and uh, a little bit about your personal life as well with the Grow Dialogue listeners. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I want to start out by asking you, you know, to start about on the personal side, you know, so how would you describe yourself personally? If I said to you, who are you personally? How would you describe that? Such an evolving question. Who am I? I would say I am a uh, retired, but I don't like that word. There have been some other better words for retired, but a second phase of my life, uh, 58 year old, gay, fat, white woman who is uh, committed to self-direction in uh, schooling and for adults, liberation, anti-racism, and really trying to find a way for, or not find a way, but to contribute to the effort to have the human experience feel feel really good for all the humans, which, you know, I think we're really far from, from that end goal at the moment, but that's how I would describe my, my life at the moment. I'm also about to be an empty nester. I have an 18 year old son who's headed off to college. Uh, surprisingly enough, I didn't think that was going to happen, but he's, he decided he wants to go and he's going. Awesome. Awesome. That was such a, um, rich description. Um, I appreciate how you, you went a little further in terms of pulling out certain descriptors than I've noticed a lot of people will do. Um, I think that there's 
you know, it actually gets into some of the things I, I, I want to ask later. So maybe I'll just use that as a teaser and, and we'll, we'll come back to go a little bit deeper. Uh, but I appreciate that, that, you know, description and the details you just shared about yourself. And so the next question I have for you is who are you professionally? How would you define yourself as a professional? Such a good question. You know, for 21 years, I was in corporate and was a co-founder and an executive and, um, you know, had a whole bunch of people by the end. I mean, it started out with five of us. And by the end, I think I had about 1,100 people reporting up to me. And in that environment, I was really um, focused on and trying to create a culture that was nurturing instead of just, you know, pure corporate burnout um, kind of an environment. And, uh, you know, it was really committed to communication, relationship building. Um, I wouldn't say equity because I don't think I had the distinctions of what equity could really look like. Um, and but I just I really wanted it to feel uh, feel good to people. Um, since then, I've been doing a few different things. Um, I've been participating a bunch with the Agile Learning Center community, um, which, as you know, Sunjata's uh, self-directed education uh, school model um, that my son went to from middle of second grade to graduating and uh, these agile learning centers have popped up all over the world. So I've, I support that in a number of different ways. I'm, I'm on the board and I uh, support, you know, any given school when they are asking for it. Um, and, and I've been putting together groups of people to practice community collaboration, equity, um, as you know, I started, a, I had a call at the beginning of the pandemic that was supposed to be one call about visualizing the future yeah, and yeah. Uh, invited uh, 50 people to that call, 25 black folks, 25 white folks, about 35 people showed up to that first call. And then we just kept meeting for almost a year, every Saturday. I think we were all just, you know, isolating and in our homes and really wanted that connection. And so many uh, connections and seeds have spawned from from that group. Um, I did some corporate consulting. Um, I'm finding myself not as interested in being in corporate spaces unless it's truly about sort of turning the model upside down and and um, yeah, sort of experimenting with structures other than hierarchical and power over. So I do do some corporate stuff and, and I'm happy to do corporate stuff, especially if it's um, amplifying or supporting black owned businesses. Um, and, and, you know, and then I have this sort of retreat center de-schooling idea that is starting to come more and more to life where people could come for a weekend, a week, a month and use that environment to de-school and deconstruct a lot of the imprinting of traditional schooling and corporate and just you know society and start to tap into intuition self-direction you know who am i really when i'm not trying to perform the ways that I, in all the ways that i've been conditioned to perform so 
that's a little bit scattered of a of a description, but that's kind of where my life is right now. There's just a lot, a lot sort of brewing and nothing that's, you know, kind of this is what I'm doing every day from nine to five. Yeah, I mean you're emerging, you're you're constantly evolving. Yes. And and just in that brief description, I mean, you shared a story of evolution that I thought was gonna be really interesting for our listeners. And that's why I asked you to be a guest because you started out on a very conventional track in corporate. And to, to speak to, you know, hear you speak to where you are now in your anti-oppression lens, your equity lens, your inclusion lens, and all those things are so, um, you know, on par with what people are calling for and asking for and the changes that, um, you know, a lot of people within corporate spaces are demanding. And, you know, I appreciate that, you know, you can speak to it you know, from both contexts, because you were, if you can share a little bit more about your role in corporate. So you were a co-founder um, and you had 1100, that's a lot of people, 1100 people yeah. reporting to you in your role. You were a senior vice president and what, and was, weren't, you were, I believe, senior vice president. And could you share a little bit about the industry uh, that you operated in? Yeah. yeah, definitely. So title was executive vice president. And, you know, it was funny because when it was five of us, I was the executive vice president of no one. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end, you know, there was all that. And I, yeah, so the industry was originally, it was direct marketing of sort of any subscription based product. So we, uh, you know, at one point, the New York Times was our, was a client, MasterCard was our client, um, some insurance companies, wireless was really big when, when there was a very low percentage of uh, wireless users in this country, we were selling or really giving away free phones, you know, at a rapid rate, hundreds of thousands of phones a month by virtue of direct mail and um, uh, outbound and inbound call centers. Um, eventually, we uh, veered toward the insurance industry. And when I left in 2016, it was primarily insurance focused. It was uh, Medicare supplements, um, life insurance, health insurance, um, stuff like that. So okay. the, the 1100 people were all sales center employees. Um, and one thing I feel good about, about that whole thing, I mean, I just, the whole corporate model of a few folks at the top making a shit ton of money and, you know, all the people whose backs that that's on are, you know, in many cases, not even making a living wage. And we did pay people, I think, pretty well for that industry. Um, you know, there were people making six figures, people making, you know, just just good money. So I, I feel in hindsight good about that. Um, but at the same time, it was a very uh, traditional corporate model with, you know, investors, people at the top making a shit ton, um, the people who are really doing the work making a lot less. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I was trying my best to make it a, a great place to be. And I think there were some successes in that domain and, and some ways in which, you know, I would want to do it all very differently if I went back. Okay. I, I, I can imagine, um, what were some of the, you know, markers of success, you know, I, uh, I know a little bit about your story, but what would you say some of the markers of success that, um, you know, you were able to, to accomplish in that role? Yeah, so our model, our original CEO, uh, Mark Byron, and our CEO until 
a couple years ago, Dave Graff, were really into this model of getting investors, increasing the value of the company, selling to a new investment group. And in that sale, there's a, an increase in valuation. So, if, you know, if you're worth $100 million and then a few years later, you're worth $250 million, then the original investors are, you know, getting two and a half times their return. And then um, the management gets to take a little bit of money off the table and then you do it all over again. So in the course of our, you know, being in a, a company together, I think our initial seed funding was a million dollars. When I left, the last sale that we did was like $525 million. And then a year and a half after I left, it was over a billion. So from a, you know, capitalist, corporate, you know, success story, that's, you know, that's considered huge success. Um, and then, you know, again, from the from what I was trying to accomplish, which was making it a, a great place to work. You know, there are other just human being successes, people who came in who didn't have an insurance license. I remember one woman who was living in her car, didn't have her children with her. We funded her getting her insurance license. She got her insurance license, was a great salesperson, was able to get a house, get her kids back. So there were, you know, cool stories like that, that kind of, you know, helped me sleep at night, even as I was recognizing that the whole system was not great for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so those are a couple of markers from different sides of the equation. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And yeah. so, you know, by, I mean, you all were an American success story in yeah. terms of all the markers, the traditional markers of success. Yeah. And ultimately, is it fair to say that this endeavor over time made you a wealthy person? Yeah, I mean, I consider myself wealthy. I have a few million dollars. I think uh, maybe less than that. I mean, a couple million dollars, I should say. Um, I think some people think I'm not wealthy enough to not worry about money. And some people think I have shit tons of money. And it's just such an interesting dynamic to be in. I think a lot of people thought I was, you know, silly to leave when I did and, you know, that I would have, you know, gotten a few mil more million dollars if I had stayed because you know, that next sale I would have participated in. So I consider myself to be very wealthy, both financially, spiritually, emotionally. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some people would agree and some people would disagree. <laughs> okay. well, the reason I ask that is because, you know, here we are, we find ourselves, you know, in this space where, again, at the very opening, when you talked about who you are and the things that you care about, you yeah. know, you, you care about very heartfelt things. So it tells me and our listeners that it wasn't just, the journey wasn't just about money for you. Yeah. And even though you were able to accomplish, you know, the success in that way by being a part of the company and one of the founders, et cetera, and taking it to those heights, um, there was something that happened to you along the way in your journey that it kind of shifted your lens from seeing money in itself and the accumulation of wealth as a marker for success to this this equity lens this inclusion lens this belonging lens and wanting to make um this place a you know like you said a great place for people to come and work where they feel valued etc can you speak to or do you know where maybe where that shift happened for you yeah well 
I think I'm, uh, let me say a few things about it and then we'll see if, my, if it if makes any sense. Okay. You know, I truthfully have never really been money motivated. Money, I, I do come from multi-generations of wealth. Um, and though my mother felt, uh, was not really grounded in um, how much privilege and wealth she had, you know, she had times where she'd be saying, well, we can't really afford groceries. And the next day she'd be saying, you know, let's go to Europe and go skiing. And I just realized that she was just like, did not have a balanced relationship with reality. And I sort of developed this idea about money that I could sort of have money flow anytime, anywhere I wanted. So I, and I'm just not that materialistic. Like even though I do have money, I don't, you know, buy fancy clothes or have a fancy car. You know, I'm just not, not that money and material um, focused. Uh, that said, I ended up in a relationship with the uh, co-parent of my son, Jill. And Jill wanted me to make a bunch of money. She was, <laughs> she had a job where she was not making a lot of money and she was like, don't make a lot of money. And I think, you know, just inside that relationship, I was like, all right, I can do that. Um, and, but it had to be in an environment where I felt like I was making a positive difference. Like I, I don't think I ever could have, you know, sort of sat in a wall street room and just been like manipulating stocks around. Like it, I had to feel like, there were human beings that I was positively impacting in that, you know, pursuit, if you will. Um, and, and I was really good at it. I mean, telephone sales, I started doing when I was in college. Um, I went to a, a <laughs> telemarketing group. They wanted me to be Susie Sparks. They didn't think Mercer Carlin was a very good uh, telemarketing name. I think I sounded like a porn star or something. But anyway, I've, I've always been really great on the phones and then teaching people to be able to do that um, so that they could make their money always felt really, really good to me. That said, I'd left my company twice. Once when my son was born, uh, I was supposed to take a six month maternity leave three months in the company was not doing well. And my boss said, you know, listen, you either need to um, come back to work now or I need to give you a package and need to go. So I, I took the package and went, and then six months later, uh, they hired me back because the company was doing better. So, and then I left again when Timothy was like three, because I wanted to pursue executive coaching and um, doing stuff that felt more personal development related than be in this business. Um, but the plan was that my ex would be making all the money and I would, you know, be starting, starting up, you know, building something and that she didn't end up doing that. So I ended up going back to my company. Um, and I, I had a coach and a healer type person who uh, I used to talk to on a very regular basis. And I kept saying, can I leave now? She's like, no, you're supporting a child. You, you know, you need to stay. So. I, I was always somewhat conflicted about the fact that I was in this sort of, you know, just money-making scheme. I mean, it's just, you know, corporate America, as most of your listeners are probably aware, is, you know, legally you are bound to be growing the business. So you can't just say, you know what, this is great exactly as it is. Let's give way more of our money to 
our employees. Let's not worry about, you know, profit growth. You can't do that. Like legally, you're bound to be growing and producing, you know, returns for your investors. So, so it was always a bit of a conflict for me. Um, but then at some point, I'm trying to think when it really started to be visible, how I wanted to live my life. I think when we opened our Charlotte center, um, sales center and our employees were probably 60% black, which was not the case in our Tampa and Fort Myers centers in Florida. And I think that, um, you know, throughout my life, I had been present to racism and blackness, you know, uh, Spike Lee's mom was my first grade teacher. She was, you know, very much um, making sure that we were not uh, living in sort of a purely whitewashed world. So there were, I had influences from early on, uh, you know, to alert me to sort of racist tendencies and, and whiteness. But I think when I started interacting with all of the, these amazing black folks in uh, Charlotte, and then I started following people on Instagram and I started getting really connected to the idea of white privilege, white power, um, a lot of distinctions that I just hadn't quite delved into and didn't really understand. Um, plus my son being in this self-directed education school, the Agile Learning Center that was really trying to be accessible. You know, most private schools are, you know, the rich white kids go to the private school and leave the rest behind. And this was a sliding scale. Um, if you could afford it, you paid a bunch. If you couldn't, you didn't. Right. Um, so that was really different for New York City. So a bunch of things were sort of converging to like wake me up, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> and uh, a really pivotal moment was when I read uh, Adrian Marie Brown's uh, first book. I don't know if it was her very first, but first one that I knew of, Emergent Strategy. Um, and that book and the way she expressed herself, just, it just turned everything upside down. You know, she had a chapter on charismatic leadership. I had been sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but mentored to be a charismatic leader. I did, you know, landmark education uh, programs. When I was 19, I started, you know, being in front of hundreds of people at a time. I was really um, appreciated for that charismatic leader persona. And so the idea of like deconstructing that and it's not about charismatic leader and it's not about hierarchy and it's not about, you know, sage on the stage, it's about guide on the side. Like that was all so new to me. Um, and I think, you know, a little bit into reading that book and all of the unraveling I was doing about my own privilege and power really just made it intolerable for me to stay at the company. So in 2016, I was just like, I, I, I gotta go. I've, I've had enough. Oh, and, and another thing that was interesting, there's a woman named Lynn Twist who wrote a book called The Soul of Money. And one of the ideas in that book is that we're so fixated on abundance and more. Um, and what about enough? 
what about enough? Sure. What about enough? Mm -hmm. And I just thought enough. I'm allowed to say this is enough. And yes, people who are money focused can say Mercer, you're an idiot because you're leaving all this money on the table. But I can declare this is enough already. Um, so anyway, uh, that's a, a little bit of my my trajectory. Ooh, that's that's so powerful. Um, thank you for sharing that. You know, um, you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can say it's enough and walk away. Yes. But even with that being said, I think that it's a powerful example because you know capitalism requires of us and demands of us and influences us. Um, and all the messaging says, like you say, to keep going for more. Like there's never enough. I remember when I uh, was in corporate spaces for a very little bit of time in my early 20s, that was one of the things that frustrated me when I was in sales positions. It was like, if you had a great month, good, but there's more. Like, yes. what's it was never it was never enough. And I used to get frustrated. Like, we just had a great month. I just did the damn thing. But now you're pushing me to do more. And it's just like, it's never enough. I'm like, how can that just be? How can that be sustainable? And, so, and it's not. <laughs> it's not in so many ways it's not in yeah. so many ways um so thank you for sh again thank you for sharing and thank you for setting that powerful example because i'm sure there's people out there that may be listening that are in a position where they have the resources to you know center themselves in ways that you've chosen to do and your mental and you know your mental emotional well physical well-being by getting out of a space that was no longer aligned with the person who you were becoming um, so I think that's a very powerful example, especially especially someone that was at your you know position of power, influence, and 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 you know wealth status and stands who stood to gain even more. So um, yeah. you know, thank you for sharing that. So another thing I would like to get into along the lines of your personal journey is that you know you shared a little bit of, about your descriptors, and you said three descriptors that. Um, you know, I know that as someone navigating corporate spaces, it wasn't the standard, it wasn't the norm. Uh, these are ways that you were different. Um, so you, you're a woman, you said gay and fat. And if I missed any descriptors that you felt that you feel like, again, aren't the norm, you know, I can't think of the words I'm thinking about, trying to think about right now, but it would say in corporate spaces, these are minority distinctions or, um, you know, disadvantaged groups or or something, you know, I can't, yeah. unfortunately the wording is leaving me, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, I want to know, were you able to show up as your full self uh, when you were in your leadership role? Um, were you able to show up as your full self or did you have to wear a mask? Ah, oh, such a good question. Oof. Um, such a good question. Uh, woman and gay, those two identities, I feel like we're able to show up to a large extent. Um, I think that there was some unconscious misogyny is maybe too strong, but sexism. You know, I was the, the only woman on the executive team uh, almost the entire time that I was there. And so there were you know, comments and sort of vibes and stuff that I navigated because I was a woman. I remember one thing that, I mean, this is just a silly little thing, but I, I know that I never would stand up and clear the table 
um, when we would have a bunch of crap on the table because we had all just eaten. Like I was just not gonna take the role of, oh, you're the woman here, so you'll do that. You know, I rarely took notes on behalf of the whole group. Like I, I was really trying to not fall into the trap. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I have a certain level of confidence that I've always had Mm-hmm. Um, that I think allowed me to sort of navigate being a woman in, you know, a man's world or uh, that was, um, I think it just, it made it a bit easier. I was really willing to go toe to toe with with anybody in the group. Fat is a whole other conversation. I, um, you know, started dieting when I was 11. Uh, the entire time I was in corporate, I was either on a diet or had just finished a diet. I was up and down uh, weight-wise the entire time I was there. And I felt as though, I mean, looking back, I think it's sort of a ticket in to corporate respect that you not be heavy. And um, it was so fascinating. One of the sales processes that we did um when we, we got a whole bunch of different investment groups that would come in and uh, I don't know, I think we had 11 different groups or something and they had anywhere from five to 15 people. It was almost all men, almost all white, a couple of exceptions. There were like a couple of Asian women, um, but like a couple out of like a hundred and all skinny. It was fascinating. This is like the Wall Street persona. So when I left corporate, I started to get into the concept of, you know, no more diets. What is my body actually? How do I release the, you know, the sort of uh, grip of, you know, deprivation and then, you know, overindulgence. And, and I just, you know, started doing all sorts of different work to free myself from, the insanity of having spent my entire life trying to shrink my body or keep it shrunk. Um, So I'm, you know, I can't say I'm completely comfortable in my body right now. Like the, the overarching culture of thin is better is so insidious. I mean, and it's just, it's killing all of us because, you know, skinny people will go to the doctor and they'll say, well, you're thin, you're fine. And then they'll drop dead, you know, and fat people go to the doctor and say something's wrong with me. And they say, no, nothing's wrong with you. You're just fat. And then they find out they have stage three cancer. So there's this bias that's so insidious um, and is, you know, racially, uh, its its origins are in racism. Um, that's a tough one. So I think that's the first time I've ever introduced myself on this podcast is the first time I think I've ever used that word, just sort of said it like, here's part of who I am, but I'm really trying to claim it and normalize that my body, it it is what it is. And I don't have craziness around food at this point. If I want something, I eat it, but I'm not like, Oh my God, if I could ever have whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be so great. I'm, Food has gotten much more neutral for me over the last, you know, five or six years. Sure. So that's the one that I would say I wasn't able to uh, show up completely as. I always had to be either trying to get thinner or thinner. You know, it was just, yeah. Mm. 
Thank you for sharing that. That's again, I, I know that that's going to be valuable uh, for our listeners. Um, you know, and I, as I'm listening to you, I'm processing just, you know, we, as you see um, in our podcast description, we're a liberation project. And, you know, I just hear so many themes of you liberating yourself um, and, and you being on like a liberation journey throughout the entire process. And you've been, you know, liberated from corporate since 2016. Um, you know, you decide to to walk away, retire early, um, relatively early compared to, you know, conventional yeah. retirement age. And, um, you know, and through even that decision was, you know, a liberating decision for you. Um, and I imagine, would you, would you say that it's a, a fair statement to say like everything that you do to liberate yourself empowers you to make the next decision to liberate yourself? Like every decision along, along the way, and these awakenings, um, as, as we evolve, it kind of empowers us to do the next thing. Yeah. So, so hearing you say that you were willing to add, you know, fat to your description of who you are, um, you know, I can imagine how liberating that is. And also I can also appreciate the journey that it took you to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm just kind of sitting in that right now and, you know, reflecting as, you know, I've, I can relate, you know, going on my own liberation journey and making so many decisions and getting pushed back uh, all along the way. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, you know, just in your journey? Um, I don't know when you came out as gay, um, you know, but is in, in, in your journey and the different layers of liberation that you stepped into, did you encounter pushback or resistance from the people who love you? Or even Yeah, when I... The coming out was really hard for me too. Um, interesting, interestingly, because I think of myself as having had a supportive family in that domain, but I, you know, you know, if you're gay, you know, early on that you're attracted to the same sex. I mean, you just are, you just are. Um, but I came out once <laughs> when I was about 19. And when I called my mom and told her I was gay, she said, that's disgusting. Um, I think she regretted that for a long time and you know, befriended one of her best friend's daughters who was also gay um, and you know, really tried to help her heal her relationship with her mom. I think that was all sort of on behalf of the two of us. But I think the societal push to be straight, um, it was really internalized for me. I tried for a long time to have a boyfriend, get married. Um, I, you know, used the landmark education programs, which are, you know, all about sort of declaring who you are. And I was like, I declare I'm straight. Like, I felt like if I could, you know, just say it loud and proud enough. Yeah, it would be true. And finally, when I was 30, um, I finally just said to myself, Merce, what if you really don't have a choice? You know, this is not something you can, you know, just force yourself into. What if you always were gay, you are gay, and you always will be? And once I considered that, everything changed. Like, there was just no question. And, um, but it was a hard process. And I really, I think... It was internalized a lot. It wasn't that a whole bunch of people were saying, oh, you're gonna go to hell or you should go to conversion therapy. I didn't have a lot of that um, or any of that. But internally, I wanted to 
you know, meet that sort of, you know, vision of, you know, white picket fence, couple kids, a husband. Oh. Yes, normal. There you go. Yeah. I wanted to meet that vision of normal really, really badly. Um, and I think this fat journey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little new with it. I think, and I follow a lot of people on social media who are fat advocates and, you know, talking about H-A-E-S, health at every size, um, recognizing that we can be, you know, moving our bodies, doing yoga, being healthy, but not necessarily with the goal of making our bodies smaller. And there is so much pushback on social media to, you know, people who are just saying, I'm allowed to live in the body that I have. I mean, you see it with Lizzo. Lizzo is being so, you know, loud and fat and proud and people are just attacking her right and left. You know, people, I don't think Adele was trying to be, you know, sort of fat phobic by losing weight, but people used her weight loss to, you know, kind of validate like all we all, anything, you know, we all want to do anything we can to be smaller. So that's a, that's a, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one. And I, my brother has always been very, um, let's see, what is the right word? He, he loves skinniness. Um, I remember when I was, you know, 110 pounds, I had lost my period because I was, you know, just not really eating enough. And he was like, you still could lose a few more pounds. And (laughs) I I have not had the conversation with him about fat phobia and being liberated by being fat. I mean, he obviously, you know, sees my body and knows that I'm not, you know, skinny at this point, but it's it's a really tough one internally and it feels like externally. It feels like people are a little skittish, like, well, what about diabetes and what about this? And, you know, truth be told, most of the research where the common wisdom is that if you're fat, you're less healthy, most of that research has been debunked. But even doctors don't know that. They're pretty sure if you could just get a few pounds off, you'd be healthier. And it's mostly just not true. So. Yeah, so that's a tough one. Gay, gay was easier in the end once I once I took it on, but this one I've I've taken on and it it still feels hard. Mm. I'm glad you spent some time touching on that because we actually intend on doing a show on fat phobia, uh, where we'll go a little bit deeper into that. So wow. So, so yeah. So thank you for yeah. touching on that. So let's transition back to, you know, our theme, um, our current theme for the podcast, which is corporate culture. And I want to know, based on your experience, uh, your experiences in corporate, how would you describe the state of corporate culture as it relates to equity, inclusion, and belonging right now? Such a good question. I think we're really far from equity in terms of what what it really means. I think we think everybody being treated the same equals equity and I think when you start to really get into equity it's not about that it's really about recognizing that we're not all the same and that you know that part of equity is um you know sort of leveling the playing field if you will 
And I think, you know, capitalist white America thinks leveling the playing field is everybody gets treated the same. And that's not, that's not true. So I think we're really, I think we're far from equity. In terms of um, inclusion, I think that, you know, I, I think there's a huge spectrum of where people are at with um, inclusion, anti-racism, you know, especially since the murder of George Floyd, you know, there was, I think, a lot less conversation. I mean, I know a lot of DEI, uh, you know, consultants who are, you know, all of a sudden completely busy and they just weren't before the mur murder of George Floyd. But I think there's a huge spectrum of how people think of inclusion. So I think some, there are companies and executives that think of inclusion as, as the same as diversity, right? Like as long as our stats look good, we have some women, we have some black folks, we have some Asian folks, we have some Latinx folks, we have some gay folks, you know, just fill in the check marks. And if we have a few of a few of everything, then we're probably, you know, good, you know, some version of that. And, and we do need to have that because there are optics and we don't want to be accused of blah, 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 but it's all, you know, sort of optics, PR, check the box kind of thing. Um, and then there, I think there, there are groups that recognize that diversity without inclusion and without doing work to make it actually feel good to these um, diverse people that you're bringing in, um, it doesn't really make any sense and it doesn't make a positive difference. And it's, you know, really perpetuating um, a framework that just makes people feel sort of awful. And so those people I think are really trying to figure out how do we shift ourselves? How do we, how do we not be the organization that's trying to make everybody appear like a cisgendered white male? Um, how do we be more inclusive of the ways that people express themselves and the ways that people think and neuro, you know, neurodivergent thinking? And, um, and I think, so I think there's some of that work going on. Um, trying to hear different voices about how it actually does feel. Um, there is a pitfall to all that though, because um, when I was doing, you know, corporate sessions and leadership sessions, I think three different times there was one black woman in the room and she had been tasked with a bunch of anti-racism, inclusive diversity work without extra pay, without any training, and meanwhile, she's trying to have a career, which is not about inclusive, you know, leadership and diversity. It's about whatever her career path is. And she's already traumatized by this crazy society we live in. So, you know, there are blind spots where people are like, oh, this will be great. We'll just ask the black woman to take it on. And it's like, no, that's not the answer. That's got so many problems with it. Um, so yeah, and I, you know, I, I feel like there's a huge wake up call coming. I mean, we're all watching Starbucks unionizing, we're watching Amazon unionizing, Apple starting to unionize. I feel like there's a, a huge wake up call to sort of the ruling class, the, you know, oligarchs of America, if you will, 
um, because workers are uniting and recognizing that that people have the power. And I, I do think letting go of the power and the hierarchy and the sort of trickle up to the top financial model, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping is going to start to have some challenges over the next few years. Okay, awesome. I appreciate that that perspective. Um, <clears throat> what do you think about the idea? Well, let me frame it this way. One of the things that I've noticed is that you have social issues that are happening in communities that are sparking a certain level of outrage that is influencing the level of focus and attention that has now been put on equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts. You mentioned the murder of George, George Floyd in 2020 as you know, increasing opportunities for DEI consultants, et cetera. What do you think about that? What do you think about, do you think that corporate America should play such a large role in this, this cultural shift or this demand for change? Is that corporate America's role? Um, should they play as large a role? How do you feel about it? That that's like, it feels to me is like the main battleground for the cultural shift that people are demanding and seeking. It's like, we're gonna hold these corporations accountable. Um, so it's something I've noticed. I wanna know if you've yeah. noticed that too and just do you have any thoughts about it? Such a good question. I think I've become more and more wary of power institutions, the government, large corporations being the, us thinking about them as the catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, sort of a la Adrienne Marie Brown's work where she's, she was, she talks in the beginning of emergent strategy about how we can take any lessons we want to from nature. We can sort of go survival of the fittest and, you know, overlay that onto uh, human beings, or we can look at mycelium and fungi and um, dandelions and tree roots and that kind of collaborative, connective, um, really much more sustainable way of living than, you know, a lot of these uh, survival of the fittest mammals. And I, so I, I sort of have this visual in my head of community building and connection being the, uh, the way out, if you will. Um, and I think the community building and the connection then forces change onto uh, corporations, governments, but I don't think that we can rely on corporate power structures or governments to make that change. I think it's, it's much more grassroots, deeper connection, connect, connecting in ways that, you know, can be challenging, you know, across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, across gender lines, across sexual preference lines. Like if we can really be um, getting better at increasing our capabilities to self-organize and connect as human beings, I think we have a chance and then it will it will sort of trickle up and things will become no longer tolerable, you know, to the government or to corporations. But I I don't I don't think those places are what are going to make the change. I think it's us. So powerful. Um 
it resonates deeply. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I can be a part of that, that grassroots organizing and communities in addition to the work that we do as a um, organization of Grow Dialogue. And as you know, I've done both, you know, I organize in both ways in both spaces. I do work in corporate spaces as well as in grassroots, you know, on the ground. And I just, I'm always thinking how I can do more. Um, so I appreciate you saying that because I, I, I get the same sense. And I feel like it's gonna take, I guess, just continued effort, you know, for people who yeah. have this, this lens and this awareness that you speak of to not just think that these these powerful corporate structures are gonna save the day. Yeah. You know, they're gonna save us. And, yeah. and, 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 and more people, you know, feeling empowered to, to understand that we can save ourselves. We can organize across yeah. those those difference those differences in identity, uh, and, and culture, etc., and find spaces and places in our communities that can bring us together versus the very like segregated silos that our country tends to operate in, and I guess most places in the world do. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. I want to say one thing about that too, Sanjana. I feel like it. I feel like this is. Um, this is important to say, which is that in my experience, one of the most difficult divides to connect across is socioeconomic. And I think that we think it's racist um, or racism or racial divides, but it's, I, I think that, you know, I know plenty of white people who are like, well, I have my rich black friend who I go play golf with, and that's not hard. You know, you're in a socioeconomic stratosphere where you two can relate to each other. I think that um, it's challenging to be someone who has a lot uh, materially and be really interconnected with somebody who doesn't and vice versa. And yet there's so much beauty in those connections. I mean, I've really been working over the past five years to strengthen my relationship with people across all walks of life and it's amazing what happens if you can move through the discomfort of what society has set up society has set up haves and haves not have nots and has made it very difficult for us to relate to each other and i just you know offer to the listeners and stuff that if you can if you can try to break down that divide in your own way in your own life it's just it's enriching and it's hard it's it's hard um so anyway i just want to want to put that out there because i think it's really big in this moment of workers uniting and people taking back power if we can bridge that connective divide you know on our own micro micro levels you know, I think that ripples out, like Adrienne Marie Brown would say, like fractals. Indeed, indeed. And as you know, um, and for our listeners, Adrienne Marie Brown's work is very influential on me as well. Emerging Strategy was definitely uh, one of the most influential books um, on my journey, you know, as, a, as an anti-oppression um, organizer, content creator and facilitator. And um, yeah, so I appreciate you bringing uh, her work to the to the forefront. Yeah. Um, this is this has been very rich, Merce. Um, I'm there's so many ways and places we can go, and you've got the brain going, and I love it. I love every time we get a chance to talk in this way, and I'm glad we got a chance to do it because we've done this, you know, in different settings. But I'm glad that we get a chance to do it in this setting for the listeners to kind of you know um, get some insights into your journey uh, because it's been a, a phenomenal 
um, I guess not phenomenal is not the word I'm looking for. It's been a, a very rich, interesting, um, expansive, you know, uh, story of evolution and liberation. I'm just so grateful you had a chance to share it with our listeners. I, I want to close out with one question um, that we ask all of our uh, guests. And the question is, can you share a story that has inspired you and or your work? You know, what popped to mind when you asked that question um, is our mutual friend, Akila S. Richards. Um, and I, you know, there was a moment in time on my journey of recognizing that self-directed education was where my son needed to be and really thinking about the ways that we try to corral human beings into a certain formula in school. And I just had this epiphany that self-directed education was access to liberation for black and brown folks. I was like, oh my God, there is no liberation in this you know, one size fits all, sit down, shut up, learn what I want you to, when I want you to. And you know, when the bell rings, learn something else um, kind of education. And then it was soon after I had that epiphany that our mutual friend Thomas, you know, told me about Akila and how her platform was that whole conversation. And I was like, oh my God, my like head exploded. And um, so getting to meet Akila and, you know, being part of her journey of getting her uh, book written and published, Raising Free People. I think just the whole, ah, oh, it makes me emotional, really connecting with, with Akila directly and with black and brown parents who have found a way for their children to be who they are and not be, you know, shoved into this white man's education system has, um, it's changed everything for me. It's really changed everything for me to be uh, part of that. I don't even know what to call it, but that's that movement, huh? Yeah, that story. Yes. Yeah, that story, that movement. But indeed, that's a powerful story. And, um, you know, for our listeners, just so you all know, you will for sure be hearing from Miss Akila S. Richards as a guest uh, <laughs> on our show at some point in the near future. So thank you so much, Mercer. This has been such a uh, rich, you know, discussion conversation and thank you for you know being so vulnerable and transparent and all that you shared um you know i take so much from every time we get a chance to to be together it inspires me and i'm hoping that our listeners uh and, and assuming that a lot of our listeners will feel the same way after hearing all that you shared in your journey and i'm, su I'm sure a lot of folks will be able to relate to a lot of the elements of what you shared uh so with that being said before we go, is there a way that our, anyone who wants to follow you to hear more from you uh, can potentially do that? Yeah. Um, so one thing before I say that, and just to say thank you so much, Sundata, being part of your journey. I mean, you know, even from before you claimed Sundata as, as your name and, you know, your practicing what you preach in so many different ways as a parent, as an educator, as somebody doing work in corporate spaces, as a human being, as a romance partner. I just have um, so much love and connection with you. And I look forward to how our, how our paths continue to cross. 
Um, so I, I am on Twitter. Uh, sometimes I'm super active for a few years. I haven't been super active, but I plan to, again, I think it's a good platform for me. So if you want to follow me on there and if folks do start following me, it might be more impetus for me to start getting my voice out more. And my handle is at Merlin works, M E R L I N W O R K S. Thank you so much. And we'll be sure to include that in the show notes for all of our listeners. So you can follow Merce and inspire her to to share more of her her just wonderfully diverse, you know, experiences and and journey um, and continue to learn. So once again, I appreciate all of you for being here and listening to another episode of the Grow Dialogue podcast. And until next time, I love (laughs) y'all. I love y'all too. Thanks for tuning in to the Grow Dialogue podcast. Remember to join our Grow Dialogue community to continue the conversation, activate authentic dialogue, and to get exclusive content, discounts, and special offers on curated artwork and music from independent artists from the Americas. Check out our show notes for more info and visit www.growdialogue.com to join our live events. Don't forget to support us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support.